you were the first openly uh, transgender man ordained to the priesthood. What was that experience like? Uh, what challenges did you anticipate that, that in reality you actually didn't end up dealing with? In other words, what surprised you about that process? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Shannon Kearns. Shannon is an ordained priest who is also a playwright. He is also the co-founder of QueerTheology.com and the author of a new book, In the Margins. Shannon, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Now, the most pressing question as we record this in the month of uh, December is just how cold is it in Minneapolis today? Well, I actually am not in Minneapolis anymore. Um, my wife and I moved to Kansas at the beginning of the summer. Um, and so we are delightfully getting a reprieve from <laughs> the Minneapolis winter. I was I was actually just up there doing a speaking engagement this past week and got stuck in a snowstorm on my way home. And I was like, oh, I do not miss this. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of people, you know, that that's the place where you see these videos go viral, people like tossing boiling water in the air and it'll freeze before it hits yep. the ground. Uh, so it's unimaginable cold. Now, I have also been in Kansas in the dead of winter and thought to myself, you know, I really wish I had another layer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're in we're in the southeastern uh, corner of Kansas, and so you know it's it's just so much more mild than we're used to. But this is also our first winter here, and we have been told it gets colder as the time goes on. Um, now, tell us about uh, queertheology.com. Yeah, so queertheology.com is a um, website that my co-founder Brian G. Murphy and I started uh, coming up on ten years. It'll be ten years this spring. And we started it as a resource in, you know, 2013, I believe, um, because at the time, the conversation, even in progressive spaces, was really centered on, is it okay to be LGBTQ+. And we were just so tired of that conversation and wanted to 
instead start something that took as its starting point, like, of course, it's okay to be LGBTQ+. And not only that, there are amazing gifts that queer and trans folks have to offer the church and the world. Um, and so we've been running the website uh, and now we have a podcast and we have the longest running LGBTQ plus Christian podcast in the world um, and just have hundreds and hundreds of articles and courses and resources for both for LGBTQ plus people who are wanting to better integrate their sexuality and gender identity and their Christianity, um, but also for leaders and pastors and nonprofit heads who want to make their organizations more welcoming for queer and trans folks. Um, it's been a real gift to, to create these resources and offer them to the world and, and also to see the community that has been built up um, around the work that we're doing. It's, you've raised a really fascinating point, which is um, how far we've come in this conversation in such a short period of time. Um, and, yeah. and I remember specifically moments where progressive leaders who weren't there theologically, and then they became there theologically. Um, you know, so what, what encouragement does that give you for um, where the conversation is um, and, and where churches are in this process? Yeah, it feels both um, just really remarkable how fast the conversation has shifted and changed and also many days just kind of bowled over by how much work there still is to do, um, particularly when it comes to welcoming trans and non-binary people uh, in our churches in ways that are actually feel welcoming and and that are, you know, that are really rooted in justice and liberation for trans and non-binary folks, not just a, well, you're welcome to come in um, so long as you don't challenge any of the things that we do. And so it, so it is both, um, I think the conversation has really shifted, things have really moved, and there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, and so it's it's important that people people acknowledge where, where they are and acknowledge that they still have work to do um, and continue to, to do the work. Well, one of the you know fascinating things that helps move uh, the conversation along is a story, and you've allowed your own story uh, to be uh, a resource for this conversation. Um, you have a new book in the margins. This book is about your journey as a transgender man and a person of faith. You wrote, um, this is the story of, un of my unbinding, but it's also a story of how you too can be unbound unbound from beliefs that have grown too tight and threatened to choke the life out of you. I wonder if you'll kind of take us back to, um, obviously, not the conception of the story of this book, but uh, your desire to use your story um, as a resource for others. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that Brian and I have learned through the work of queer theology and, and also, you know, in churches and activism is that it's not really having the best argument that moves the needle. Um, we have found that when we've entered into conversations where we're, you know, debating the so-called clobber passages um, or going back and forth on certain Bible verses, that that usually just sticks us in a loop with someone, right? That, that it doesn't actually move the conversation. Um, but that when we've jumped to telling our story and not just telling our story, but really talking about 
how our faith has been enriched by, for me, my queer and trans identity, um, that suddenly that is what shifts the conversation and helps us to have both a more open dialogue, but also I think builds builds empathy between people. And so it it feels like story is one of the most important things that, and one of the most important tools that we have to shift conversations. And I think for myself, as someone who grew up in a rural community in the 80s and 90s, before the internet was a thing, um, who never saw myself represented in stories or on television and in movies, the idea of of sharing my own story um, and so and sharing it so deeply is is really from this space of I I don't ever want another trans kid growing up without someone to look up to, without a story that they can find themselves in. Um, and so sharing my story is always that kind of twofold thing of I want to help move the conversation forward. And I also want to be a trans adult who is living my life out loud so that trans kids have someone to look up to. Let's go back to that that term unbound. Uh, what do you mean by it? Yeah, I, I think about the ways in which society, our religious traditions, our families often put things on us, right? And that can be anything from expectations around gender or gendered behavior, expectations for what job we're going to have, um, expectations that we're going to believe a certain way. And that part of growing into adulthood is to look at all of the things that we've inherited and really examine if they're ours, right? If, if they've been placed on us or if it's something that, that we want to hold on to. And so for me growing up in, I, I would term the, the tra tradition that I grew up in, fundamentalist evangelicalism, very, very conservative. You know, there was always the, this is one, there is only one way to believe. There's only one way to behave. There's only one way to understand God and Jesus and the Bible. Um, and so I really had to go through a process of of unpacking all of the beliefs that I had inherited to say, do I really believe this? Um, does this match with my own understandings of God, my experience in the world, the things that I'm learning about theology and the Bible from other thinkers and theologians? Um, and so it it really did feel like a process of unbinding and I think it it particularly felt like that coming out of evangelicalism because it, I've often talked about evangelicalism as a house of cards, right? It's a it's a it's a system that only works if you buy into the whole system. The moment you pull one card out, the whole house comes down. Um, and so that that idea of kind of unraveling the grave clothes, you know, I think of the the Lazarus story and and needing to be unbound. Um, that that's where that really that image comes from and that's what that process felt like for me before we can talk about um unbinding how people of faith see gender and gender roles i think we need to look at how 
we view scripture. So let's zero in to when you talk about being unbound from only reading scripture in one way through one lens. Um, talk to us about the influences that helped reshape the lens you viewed scripture. Oh, there are so many. Um, you know, I think I think that I, I went to Union Theological Seminary in New York, um, and and honestly, even more than learning to read scripture differently, differently, the the first piece for me was learning church history, um, and learning where certain doctrines had had come from and been and how they'd been handed down. Because, you know, I grew up in this tradition that said this is the one way to believe and and we got this from Jesus himself right and so to realize that like oh no you didn't actually get the idea of the rapture from Jesus himself like that came from someone else uh, much much later that that starting to learn that history gave me a sense of of being able to read the bible uh with new eyes and and to be able to start to say oh i don't have to just read it in the way that i grew up with um, and then it was starting to understand, you know, historical, the historical context that the Bible was written in, the political context the Bible was written in, the ways that the Bible isn't a monolithic book. Instead, it's a library of books that are in conversation with one another. Um, and so that was a huge eye-opening thing for me. Uh, and then it was being introduced to people who were reading the Bible from specific context, liberation theology, Black theology, womanist theology, feminist theology, um, that, that starting to understand that we all bring ourselves to the text and that we are allowed to bring ourselves to the text um, was huge for me because that was not something I was taught as a, as a child and, in, and even into college. It was like we don't bring ourselves to the text, the text gets brought to us. Um, and so to, to see that, that there had been a long history and tradition of people bringing themselves to the text and saying, when I read from my particular context, it opens up a new way of understanding. And it opens up a new way of understanding, not just for me and for the other people who share my particular context, but for everyone else as well, that you know, when when we read black theology as for me as a white person, like I'm learning something about myself and about God and about how to understand Jesus and and all of those things. Like it's not just for black folks, it's for me too. And in the same way of doing theology from a trans perspective, it's not just for trans and non-binary folks, it's for everyone. Um, and that for those who have, have the willingness to enter into reading those perspectives with humility um, and with a, a desire to be changed, I think they will find profound insights into their own life and experience. I want to go a little deeper there. You know, before shifting your mindset, um, how did you believe scripture shaped the construct of gender and gender roles? And what do you think were the influences that shaped those views? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating because I don't know that, 
I don't know that I would have said that scripture shaped gender roles um, in the church that I was growing up in. However, there were really clear ideas of what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a woman. And mostly those were defined by what you were allowed or weren't allowed to do, right? Like men were the leaders, men were the heads of households, men were the ones who could preach. Women were supposed to be submissive and subservient and take care of the children and obey the men in their lives. Um, and obviously people were using scripture to make some of those cases, particularly around women not being allowed to preach. Um, but it was also so, it was so unexamined in that world at the time, in the 80s and 90s in particular, that it, it wasn't that we were having conversations around gender and, and what the appropriate gender role was. It was just assumed that like, this is what it means to be a man. And this is what it means to be a woman. And this is what behaviors go along with that. And so I think that, that part of what's so important to understand is how often our assumptions about gender are completely unexamined, um, that it's just assumed that gender acts on us in a certain way. Um, and I think that one of the things that I've had to really come to understand in myself as coming out as trans of moving through the world as a man now is how how harmful often these unexamined ideas are um, and the gift of being trans is that like I don't I have to examine them I have to pay attention to um how what it means for me to be a man and how I'm going to be a man in the world and because I was raised as someone who was assumed to be female, um, I understand, I think, in a different way, how these ideas around gender and gender roles act and impact people. And so I'm I'm very much aware in my own masculinity of how of how I don't want to to carry that masculinity forward in a way that will be harmful to women and to other folks. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. 
we are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. What about your understanding of scripture today has reshaped the way that you understand uh, gender and gender roles? You know, in other words, kind of we've looked at where you were, um, but but what aspects of the way that you think these are the tangible things in which I view scripture allows you to um, have this new understanding of gender and gender roles? I mean, I think just reading the Bible, right? <laughs> when you actually read the text as it's written, um, you start to see that gender is way more complex than we are often taught in our churches. Um, that there are all throughout scripture, people who are violating gender norms, um, the gender norms of their time and being lauded for it. Um, that we see examples of, for instance, eunuchs all throughout scripture who are playing pivotal roles in um, in really important stories, right? It's the eunuchs that save Esther. It's the eunuchs that are promised a name better than sons and daughters. It's the eunuch that is um, one of the first Gentile converts to Christianity. And so it's all of these things that when we start to really read the text, it's like, oh, there's something, there's something much more nuanced and fascinating going on here than men do this and women do this. Um, and so I think, I think we have to read we have to read scripture, obviously, with with scholars in mind and with, you know, folks who are translators and folks who know the history, all of those things. But we also need to read the text as it's there, not just in what we've inherited or what's been handed down to us. One of the best features of the book is... Uh glossary of terms, because um, I know that there are well-intended people uh, like myself that want to speak more inclusively, but sometimes do not know the right way to, to talk about it. Why was it important for you to include this in the book? Yeah, I, I wanted to both include a glossary that um, allows people to understand the terms, but I also, it was really important for me to not define the terms in the text. Um, and and that was more important to me even than the glossary because I was so tired of always having to write about trans experience through a not trans lens. Um, and I wanted this to be a book that trans folks could pick up and feel like it was for them and not like it was just explaining their existence to cisgender folks. And so for me, I wanted to be able to just use the terms that my community uses all of the time um, in the text and then kind of for once make folks who are not in our community do the work of having to flip to a glossary. Because um, I do, I mean, I do think that it is important that folks have access to glossaries and to, to language um, and also that that trans folks 
be allowed to just use our language without having to explain it all the time. So that kind of dual duality was really important for me um, in, in approaching language and in approaching the glossary. And I think to your, your question of, you know, folks wanting to get language right and to, um, to be more inclusive, it's also just important to note that language is shifting really quickly um, and that odds are you're going to get it wrong at some point. And it's less about whether or not you always have the words 100% correctly correct all the time. It's more about how do you handle it when someone corrects you and say says something like, that's not a word that we use anymore, or you use this word, the community prefers this word. Um, and to be really gracious about that correction, to thank people for taking the time to correct you, and then to change your language moving forward. Um, it, it, it's always worse when someone when I've taken the time to correct someone and they get really defensive, that lets me know that they're not actually invested in my liberation, that they're invested in um, looking like an expert or an ally or right, um, and that they're, they're maybe not someone even that I can trust. And so it's really important that how you handle correction is, is even more important than, than getting it right all the time. You were the first openly uh, transgender man ordained to the priesthood. What was that experience like? Uh, what challenges did you anticipate, but that in reality you actually didn't end up dealing with? In other words, what surprised you about that process? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I was really fortunate to have really great bishops who um, have supported my my journey to, to ordination, who respect my identity, um, who value my contributions in, in the world. Um, and so that has been really, really beautiful. Um, I, I think that I don't know that there was anything that I expected to face that I didn't. Um, I, I do feel like the, the gift of of walking with people in their faith journeys um, is something that I, that is continually moving to me and inspires me to want to do and be better um, as a priest, as a person, as a theologian, um, because it's such a gift to be entrusted with people's stories and, and to be entrusted with people's spiritual journeys um, and to, to be invited to walk with them in in and out of traditions and experiences and understandings of the divine and the church. It's, it's just a really, it's a real gift. It would be easy for us to, to talk about how your transition um, ran into many challenges, but I wonder if we can work out of a sense of abundance. Can you share um, how it cultivated an enriched faith journey for others? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think the the gift of my transition um, initially was for myself, obviously, to you know to move through the world in my truth. What I didn't expect um, was how deeply it would enrich my faith. You know, I the act of transitioning brought me back into my body in a way that I had never been, and it allowed me to have an embodied faith for the first time, um, and that was just that was just a gift that I was not expecting uh, and has has really changed my life. 
And then I think the other piece of that then was when I started to share what had happened in my life and in my faith because of my transition, I was shocked to find how often the things that I was discovering were resident for other people too. Um, and that was when I realized like, oh, there's something really powerful when we do theology um, from particular contexts and when we name those contexts that, you know, the first time I talked about understanding Jesus's scars um, as, as something, you know, I had always been taught growing up that when we got our resurrected bodies, that they would be perfect and that anything that we did, we hated about ourselves would be kind of fixed. And this idea that Jesus in his resurrected body kept his scars was mind blowing for me because it, it made me understand that, oh, that this isn't this, this act of resurrection, this process of resurrection isn't about making our scars go away. It's about sanctifying them. It's about making them holy. Um, and as someone who moves through the world with scars on my body, that that act of making scars holy has been really profound for me. And when I started to share that story from a trans context, I was blown away by how many people were like, oh, I have scars too. I have scars from this childhood accident. I have scars from this surgery. I have self-harm scars all of these different ways that people were able to interact with their scars differently um, because I had talked about my scars as a trans person and I had talked about what I, how that made me understand Jesus's scars in a new way, that that then became this shared moment for all of us to have this new encounter with that story and with the idea of scars. And that was such a powerful experience. And I've seen that happen over and over again, not just with that story, but with other stories as well. And that continues to, to lead me into the power of doing theology from particular contexts and, and how important it is to do that work and how much it matters, not just for, again, the trans community, but for all people. Sexuality and, and gender are by far uh, some of the most contentious issues within the American church. Obviously, racism and political idolatry are up there too. Um, we have local church pastors and congregational leaders listening to this conversation that are across the spectrum on this conversation, both where they are theologically and where their churches are theologically. So uh, let's break down a, a few places uh, of where some might be and, and talk about how to resource them for for this conversation. First, I, I imagine that we have folks who are not quite there theologically to become more inclusive of non-binary folks. Uh, what, what resources would you recommend them using to help them research and think through and, and navigate these matters? The two um, best books I would recommend are Justin Tannis's book, um, um, Transgender theology, ministries, and communities of faith. I might have the subtitle <laughs> wrong, but Dr. Justin Sabiatanis is um, a phenomenal thinker. And that book is really, it's a really great kind of gender 101, but also gender and the Bible 101 
so really powerful book. And then Austin Hartke's Transforming is also really fantastic. Austin um, interviewed a, a bunch of trans and non-binary folks and includes their stories in the book, um, as well as more information about the trans community. So those are both really great um, kind of starting places for that conversation. I, I know we have folks listening to this that lead churches where the hint of these conversations would ignite a conflict. And although they might be there theologically, their churches, at least on whole, aren't. So how would you recommend a local church pastor begin to navigate this conversation within their church? Well, first I would say it's time for you to have courage um, that you have to ignite these conversations, that people are literally dying. Um, and they're dying because of the theology that is coming out of churches that are not fully affirming of LGBTQ plus people. They're, this is just such a vital issue um, that we need pastors who are willing to be leaders, who are willing to be prophetic, who are willing to lose their jobs um, in solidarity, both for the LGBTQ plus community, but also, I mean, you, you, you mentioned too, racism and Christian nationalism, like this is a time for courage. Um, and we've, we've got to have leaders who are wading into these waters and are leading non-anxiously um, through these hard conversations. And I think that it's just, we have to have, we have to be having these conversations. Um, and so that's the first piece is like, it's time, it's time for you to, to lead. If you're going to lead your congregation, it's time for you to lead. Um, and I know that that's not easy. And I know that I'm asking a lot. And also, like I said, people are literally dying because of this. And so it's, it's, we're beyond the point where we can agree to disagree. You know, we're beyond the point where we can allow silence to to cover these issues that what we need is is full affirmation and full solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and we need it like yesterday. Finally, I, I know there are people listening to this that are already embracing of transgender persons, but are frustrated with the churches and clergy that are not. Um, what's your wisdom for them? I mean, I think the best thing that you can do is to to do your own work, um, to really make sure that your church is living out their welcome, um, that you are learning from trans and non-binary leaders, that you're following that their lead, that you're getting involved in solidarity work with their communities, um, whether or not those folks are even coming to your church or will ever come to your church. That that often I think what folks need is they need a really loud and visible um, witness, right? And so if you're frustrated with churches that aren't there, then I think the best thing your church can do is be all there and to and to really lead the work and and be led by trans and non-binary folks, um, but to be loud about your affirmation, to be public about the work that you're doing in solidarity with trans and non-binary communities, um, and to be a, a witness in, in those spaces so that other people can see the work that you're doing. I'm, 
I'm of a mind that how the world changes is that there's just enough people that are building beautiful, beautiful communities um, that the ones that aren't inclusive and the, don't seem appealing anymore, right? That that we build the new world in the shell of the old. Um, and and I think that that's the the best work that people can do is to um, to really go all in on your on your welcome, but to make sure that you're continuing to do your work. I, I know a lot of churches that have been open and affirming for decades, but haven't done any updated trainings for their congregation or their clergy um, in a really long time. And so they have welcome statements, for instance, that are using outdated language or um, folks say that they're welcoming, but they haven't had any education on trans issues. So making sure that you're staying up on what's happening, both in like education and language, but also what's happening in the community. I, I can't tell you how many affirming and progressive churches I've been in conversation with that have no idea the amount of anti-trans laws that are currently making their way through the courts in this country. They're just, they just have no idea what's happening to the trans community. Um, and so making sure that you're paying attention to what's happening where you are, but also nationally is really a vital. I imagine you've, um, you've received a lot of feedback from readers. Uh, what's been the most unexpected feedback you've received? I, I think the, I don't know if it's unexpected, but it's the, it's the thing that I'm most grateful for um, is both trans folks who read the book, who feel for the first time, um, like there is a space for them in scripture and Christianity, um, who maybe have grown up in traditions where they, they didn't feel like there was a space for them, um, but they've been longing to still connect with this tradition. And so to hear that my book has has created a bit of hope or a bit of um, space for them to, to feel like they can still be a part of this tradition that matters to them, that's been really gratifying. Um, and then I think also to hear from non-trans folks who read the book, who saw something of themselves in it, um, that was always my hope. And so to hear that that's happening for people is um, is just a real gift. Our guest is Shannon Kearns. The book is in the margins. You can stay connected with Shannon by visiting shannontlkearns.com and queertheology.com. Shannon, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for reminding us that it is with finding new ways of thinking and believing that we are becoming more like Christ. It's my pleasure. Thank you for a really, um, really enriching conversation. This was great. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. 
The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.